fake, fake, fakety fake. Hi, I'm Jody. I'm Caitlin. And welcome to Imperial News, where I spend my whole week listening to the Far Right Podcast Rebel News, then contemplate my life choices with my friend Caitlin. Great. This episode, we will be covering the week of November 4th. How are you, Caitlin? I'm not feeling well. I feel like this is happening all the time now. At least you can't blame it on me this time. I am permanently sick. <laughs> well, I hope you get better. But for now, you're not going to get any better <laughs> listening to this podcast. Because it's a, it's a pretty heavy uh, episode today. I, got, I wanted to play something first to lighten the mood. Albumia, Albumia, how lovely are your wheat fields. <laughs> Any context to this? Uh, album. So apparently, it has to do with Alberta separating. So apparently, mm-hmm. him and us, uh, a friend of his, wanted are back when they were thinking about separating, but they decided that it was Alberta and British Columbia were going to separate. Hence, the weird mishmash of Albumbia, which is Alberta and British Columbia stuck together, and that was uh, part of the national anthem that they came up with. <laughs> But before we get into the episode, I just want to say that if you have a few extra bucks, consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com slash imperial news. And I think I'm going to update some of the goals that we have listed. One of them is that we're going to eventually cover uh, ethical oil. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, I found a bunch of, uh, of his books. And so we're going to probably get to the books long before we reach that goal. So I'm going to adjust uh, adjust to some of the goals, but this could be an opportunity to help out. Like, uh, what more do you want from us to so donate and become part of that process and tell us what you want us to do and we'll do that. But eventually we'll, we'll cover the books on our own before we reach any of these monetary goals. So again, that's patreon.com slash imperial news. But uh, for now, let's get into the imperial roundup. Hello, my rebels. Hello, my rebels. I'm a good boy. I'm a weirdo. So November 4th, I'm not going to be talking about anything because that's going to be the main segment. Oh, so okay. we'll skip it. It's a surprise. It's, it's a little bit of a surprise. Okay, great. Uh, <laughs> but we'll just skip it for now. So that was Monday. And we'll jump right to the 5th. And Ezra begins the episode on the 5th with a bold claim. One thing is for sure, the Green Party, and indeed all the parties on the left in Canada, the NDP, that small party in Quebec called Quebec Solidaire, and even much of the Liberal Party of Canada is moving hard left wing, not just economically, not just on global warming, of course they are, they're all socialists now, but I mean, they're becoming radical on social and cultural issues. They support Antifa violence and deplatforming, for example. They even support terrorist groups, or almost. And they're increasingly proudly anti-Semitic. It's not even a hatred that needs to be disguised anymore. That's right. So not only do the liberals support Antifa, but they're now openly anti-Semitic. Any context to this? Along with the NDP, along with the Green Party, and the Quebec Quebec Solidaire. They're all anti-Semitic. So his evidence. He starts by, uh, again, talking about Elizabeth May supporting Omar Khadr. So we're going to ignore that 
uh, also, we're, we're eventually going to cover this in more detail. I, I already sort of briefly did a rundown on it when uh, Menzies asked her that stupid question during the debate scrum. And they played that clip again in this segment. But we will have to cover that in more detail because Ezra actually wrote an entire book on the subject of Omar Khadr. I didn't know this, but now I have the book and we will eventually cover it. But so after Elizabeth May and the Green Party, uh, he then moves into talking about the shifting demographics in Canada and saying that these shifts are uh, moving the Overton window towards being pro-Islamic terrorism. And <laughs> he cites a case where a Muslim individual uh, vandalized a synagogue and uses it as an example of the rise of anti-Semitism from this Islamic influence on the left, which is kind of silly because in reality, religiously motivated attacks have increased by 50% in 2018. And of the reported incidents, 360 targeted Jews, which is an increase of 63%, while 210 targeted Muslims, which is an increase of 151%. Oh. So the trend is moving towards uh, attacks against Muslim people. However, most of the incidents against Jews were considered nonviolent, while as a large portion of the incidents against Muslim people were in fact violent, including physical assaults and threats of violence. Christians are nowhere near these numbers, although Ezra still wants to think that they're being victimized too. So, for example, Catholics have experienced only 39 inc incidents in 2018, which is like weak considering how large they are as a proportion of Canada. So Catholics represent 38.7% of Canada. Okay. Islam re represents 3.2% uh, of the population, and Judaism only represents 1% of the population, which is pretty small. And, and yet, even though that's small, apparently uh, Canada has the fourth largest Jewish population. Hmm. Which is interesting. In the world? That's what it said. Are you sure? That's what it said. That seems odd. It does seem odd, but that's what it said. Anyway, so Ezra then criticizes uh, politicians having campaign materials in foreign languages. And again, focuses on Ahmed Hussein, who's the immigration minister uh, for Trudeau. And I mean, he was born in Somalia and he... Uh, his riding is in a Somali neighborhood. Yeah. And so, of course, he's going to speak Somali <laughs> to some of his constituents. But of course, this is like an affront to Ezra. And then Ezra says he doesn't think Hussein himself is anti-Semitic. Yet says, oh, but he is friends with Ilhan Omar. And therefore, because of the transitive properties of anti-Semitism, <laughs> uh, and I don't think Ilhan Omar is obviously anti-Semitic. All these examples, even though they're like few examples, are all to lead up to this most recent case that was big in the news. I don't know if you heard about it, but uh, NDP MPP Joel Hardin, okay. uh, he sent out a tweet that got a lot of criticism from pro-Israeli groups in Canada, such as B'nai B'rith, which is a super pro-Israel group in Canada. And uh, we've covered them already on this show as well. And we covered them in that they tend to promote Islamophobic positions as well. Yeah. And the thing that they were mad about Joel Hardin tweeting was he tweeted support for an individual named Khalida Jarrah. And she is an elected politician in Palestine representing the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Yeah. 
Now, the PFLP has been designated a terrorist organization by the U.S., Canada, Japan, Australia, and the EU, even though most of their attacks occurred in the 60s and 70s. Now, this is qualified with there has been some recent upticks in attacks from the PFLP, especially after the Second Intifada. And to me, it's less of, say, terrorism, so they're not hijacking planes and so forth, but this seems to be more of a reaction in a war zone kind of circumstance and you can argue whether some of the events were right or wrong just as you can argue whether what israel is doing in occupied palestine is right or wrong but anyway so this woman kalita jarara has been arrested okay she's been arrested before in like weird circumstances in which she wasn't uh convicted of a crime and even Haaretz, which is a newspaper in Israel, described her situation as a Kafka-esque perversion of military law, as they basically just arrested her and like with these charges that didn't make sense and were pushing her around and she didn't know what was going on. And she this happened in 2015. She was then released in 2016, detained again in 2017, released, and now she's being detained again. Hence the tweet from Hardin basically saying, hey, Trudeau and Kara Freeland, this is terrible what's happening to this woman. Can you please do something? Okay. That was it. That was the tweet, <laughs> right? And this has led to Benai Birth basically saying that Joel Hardin is supporting a terrorist. And this is the sole reason. So this is how Ezra links this back to a statement that the NDP is this is This is evidence that the NDP is anti-Semitic. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and uh he so there's that that's that's the main reason for talking about this however he also wants to connect this to the uk because in the uk right now there's a lot of uh moves to try to paint labor and the green party as being anti-semitic yeah and so he plays this clip of the deputy leader of the uk greens or will it be like in the uk where the few people upset about things out loud, like Tommy Robinson, they're the ones arrested because it's easier. Here's the Green Party deputy leader in the UK from a few years back. I, I know I've shown this before. It's just amazing to me. He's not some white leftist trying to get the anti-Semitic vote. He's a Muslim leftist who is getting the anti-Semitic vote, the Muslim vote, and the guilty white leftist eco-votes too. Listen to this guy. Just because your God tells you to stand here does not give you the right to push us aside. Just because you observe the niceties of Holocaust Memorial Day does not mean that you have learned the lessons of history. Listen up, warmongers. Just because you switch off your TV set to avoid upsetting your children does not mean that you have not killed our children. We call for suspension of the EU-Israel trade associations. We call for a boycott of Israeli goods. We all understand that you cannot have peace in the Middle East without justice for the Palestinians. Will be next, will be next, will be next, will be next. Peace 
Peace be upon you. Yeah, Esther comes in there with a bit of sass, being like, peace be upon you. Uh, the it, the interesting thing about that clip is that was Sharar Ali, who was the deputy leader of the Green Party. Yeah. He Now, this clip was long before he was the deputy leader of the Green Party. I think he was between 2013 and 14, okay. I think. But this clip is from 2009, and it was actually released when he was running to try to become the leader uh, of the Green Party. Mm-hmm. And people released it to basically say that I... The, the major claim, anyways, was that he was comparing the treatment of the Jews during the Holocaust to what's going on with Palestinians. Yeah. And that's not quite what he said in that clip. Well, no, he was saying that just because you've gone through adversity doesn't give you a right to go and treat another group with the same adversity. Well, I think the direct quote was he, he said, just because you know what the Holocaust is doesn't mean that you've learned the lessons of history. Yeah. Right? So... However you frame that, he wasn't comparing what happened to the Palestinians to the the Holocaust, the Holocaust. But that is what was used as sort of the attack against him. I also don't, I, I find it funny because he called for a boycott uh, of Israeli goods, which is the BDS movement. And a lot of people react to that as being like, oh my God, they're, they hate Israel so much they want to boycott, so therefore they must hate the Jews or something like that. Like, that's always the stretch that they make. And yet here, Ezra has complained most of this episode about the PFLP and how they're a terrorist organization and how evil they are. This is why it's like you can never win in the case of Palestine because they're those people are actually fighting with guns and they're the terrorists. But then even when an activist is going to fight with like economics and be like, let's not support Israel financially. Even that is a step too far and it's anti-Semitism, right? It's like you can never win. Criticize or anything. But the interesting thing is your, your eyes pricked up, which doesn't get caught in the media when he, uh, saying that little bit at the end there. Do you know what that is from? No. So that's, this is like an interesting, uh, oh, well, I find it interesting, like weird side note. Uh, there's this band in uh, the UK called Manic Street Preachers, and they released an album called This Is My Truth, Tell Me Yours. And the lead single off that album was called If You Tolerate This, Your Children Will Be Next. Okay. And that was the lead single, and it was released in 1998. So by the time Sharar is given this talk, it's, the song has been about 10 years yeah. old. Now, the really cool thing about the song is it has a very clear anti-fascist message. So the, the title, If You Tolerate This, Your Children Will Be Next, was actually the slogan of pamphlets given to British citizens to help uh, join against the fight against Fa- Franco in the Spanish Civil War. Oh, okay. And the idea was, if you tolerate Franco, your children will be next. And yeah. the idea was like, the fascists are going to come. And eventually they did, right? Like yeah. Nazi, uh, the Nazis started bombing the UK eventually, right? So, and not only that, so you had some of the lines in the song too. Like, if you think just that title alone <laughs> highlights the anti-fascist message of the song, there's a line that says... Uh, if I can shoot rabbits, then I can shoot fascists, which was a, something that one of the uh, citizens who left to go fight in the war said, basically, you know, if I can shoot rabbits here at home in the UK, I can shoot fascists over there and like went and uh, fought fascists. So anyways, yeah. it's a very big anti-fascist song. And it was like very popular in the 90s, which is sad because I don't think you can write such an overt anti-fascist song today and have it go multiple platinum. 
But <laughs> an interesting tidbit is back in 2009, the song was played during a promotional video for the British National Party. Okay. And we've talked about the British National Party before on our show. They're a, a fascist group in yeah. the UK, which is ironic that they would play this song. But as you would figure, the band and Sony were not too pleased that a fascist organization was using their anti-fascist song and sued them uh, until they removed the, the song from their promotional videos. And to complete this weird circle, Tommy Robinson used to be a member of the BNP before he left to form the English Defense League, where he was then hired by Rebel Media, who would then play a British politician singing the song Oh my gosh. the BNP were being sued for at that time on this episode that we're playing. So it's like this weird interconnected loop. But uh, yeah, it's an awesome song. I recommend you check it out. But moving on. Ezra then turns uh, from this to pointing out that there's all these allegations of anti-Semitism against Jeremy Corbyn. And a lot of those, I think, have been somewhat overblown, too. I mean, there, there are some issues. I, I don't want to, like, paint the whole thing and say there's absolutely no anti-Semitism. There's probably even anti-Semitism within the BDS movement, as we've talked about on the show. But again, uh, that, does, that shouldn't take away from the overall message of the rest of the people yeah. in the movement, right? Now, the, the thing that worries me about this whole move is there's, there's this trend which is indi indicated in what's going on in the UK towards blaming the left for anti-Semitism. And this is really bizarre considering the anti-Semitism that's like more <laughs> than just subtle within the far, or like the right wing parties. Yeah. And even on Ezra's show himself, like we covered Faith Goldie. And she's a fucking anti-Semite and has been on his show. And he gave her a platform, including when Gavin McGinnis and her and Sheila Gunn-Reed were making Jew jokes about Ezra. Like this, this all happened on his show. We even talked about uh, when Ezra had Joel Pollack, the editor of Breitbart, on his show. And they were both talking about how it is essential to Jews to want to support Israel. Yeah. Which in itself is anti-Semitic to declare that like there's an inherent property of, of Jewishness such that they have to like uh, Israel. And then even the, like the politicians they support, like Donald Trump and Doug Ford, even though they promote Israel, have said wildly anti-Semitic things yeah, before, yeah. including uh, Doug Ford is my favorite. Like when he uh, basically, <laughs> I know <what> you're <laughs> basically went on a rant about, Oh, I know tons of Jewish people. Like my doctor's Jewish, my lawyer's Jewish. Or he said his in fact, my wife's Jewish. My wife's Jewish. Matter of fact, my wife is Jewish. And then they interviewed her and she's like <laughs> What did she say? Not, she's just like, I do have I family have members that are Judaism. Yeah. Like <laughs> But I myself am not She's practicing like, the Judaism. And she mentioned like, something about blood. She's like, I don't have uh, Jewish blood, but some of my relatives do practice Judaism. My mother's family has Jewish bloodlines. I don't practice Judaism. I never have. Yeah. Yeah. It was really bad. But I mean, the, which is the thing is like, the, the, they like Doug Ford because someone like Ezra likes Doug Ford because of his pro-Israel stance, even though he says things that are way worse in terms of anti-Semitism. 
by stereotyping Jews and yeah it's it's yeah anyways and so this trend is happening and it's not good and don't all so you got to be careful because you do have to police your own side to a certain extent i don't want to have anti-semitism anti-semitics Semitism. <laughs> on the left right yeah but at the same time we shouldn't let them uh, those on the right control the narrative by basically calling us all anti-semites merely for being critical of israel which is a state and Israel is not equal to being Jewish. It is a state, much like Canada is a state. Yeah. So that's that's that piece. We then uh, go into the interview segment. And I'm not going to talk much about it. It was pretty stupid. So he had someone on who was uh, an employee of Project Veritas. Okay. We've talked about them on the show. They're the right-wing group in the States that goes quote-unquote undercover and reveals really poorly edited clips about how abortionists want to eat babies. Of course. (laughs) So what happened this week, I don't know if you heard about this, is this clip from ABC News, it was like a hot mic scenario that was filmed a couple months ago of a a reporter named Amy Roback basically talking about how ABC killed her story on Jeffrey Epstein. Okay. And she was complaining of like, oh, I had, I had all these pieces and now everyone else is covering it and I kind of like miss my thing. She also says that she thinks that Epstein was murdered and didn't commit suicide. And that is a common conspiracy theory that's going around. But Amy Robach did come out herself saying that she was taking a, taken somewhat out of context in that she didn't think that ABC killed the story for any like nefarious reasons, but because it there was still questions about the sources that she had okay. and other stuff. And yeah. So it wasn't of the quality that they were ready to produce it. Now, with this out, a lot of people have been sort of praising Project Veritas. Even people on the left were saying, well, they've been wrong about other things, but here's this one. But the thing that's really annoying is even this one, was someone edited by them to like take that context out of it. <laughs> and the one good thing that I'll say that comes out of that is that it keeps the Epstein story fresh in the news because it yeah. kind of faded away a bit. And I think it would be sad if it does fade away because the victim still needs some kind of restitution and some sort of uh, media attention to help them with uh, going on with the suits and other things that they can still bring against his estate or other people that were involved in the criminal enterprise that was Jeffrey Epstein. So that was the rest of Ezra's show was him and this Project Veritas guy just coming up with conspiracy theories about ABC News quashing the story. And uh, yeah, there's nothing important to cover. (laughs) November 6th, Ezra focuses on an an opinion piece written in a science journal Hmm. uh, with a petition by 11,000 scientists saying that oh, yeah. climate change is bad. And this was covered on the CBC. Yep. And Ezra laughs at them because he scanned through the Canadian scientists and found a whole bunch of non-scientists on the list. And I kind of agree with him on this point, and this is going to get frustrating. So one of the people included on the list that he pointed out that I agree is ridiculous that he pointed out is someone who's an expert in reincarnation. What? Uh, which is not a scientist. <laughs> Although some of the people that Ezra points out are not scientists. So he goes, there's this person from the Perimeter Institute who studies time. They're not scientists, but 
the Perimeter Institute is a science institute associated with the University of Waterloo, <laughs> which like uh, Stephen Hawking has been to and like other yeah, things. Yeah. So it's like they're physicists, but it was so that doesn't necessarily mean you're a climate expert, but you're still a scientist. So. Yeah. <laughs> Before we get into that part of it, I'm going to play you Ezra reading uh, from the paper itself. Scientists have a moral obligation to clearly warn humanity of any catastrophic threat and to tell it like it is. On the basis of this obligation and the graphical indicators presented below, we declare with more than 11,000 scientist signatories from around the world, clearly and unequivocally that planet Earth is facing a climate emergency, climate emergency. <laughs> yeah, that, that's not scientists, not how scientists talk. Those are political words. So I didn't know there was a distinction between science words and political words. <laughs> but apparently merely stating that there's a climate emergency is now you're using it's political political words. They're I, taking off their science has, hats and writing in their political hats. Now, Caitlin, trying to argue. as a soci sociologist, <laughs> do you think... Because this is one thing, I'm a philosopher, so of course I'm going to stick normativity into everything. But my guess is like as someone who writes on a scientific subject, there are parts of your work where you consider the moral or societal implications of your work, yes? Yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> I mean, it was more a rhetorical question, but like you get it. Like Ezra yeah. seems to think that if a scientist speaks up speaks out about the implications of their work then all of a sudden they're no longer doing uh science they're doing politics yeah. which is completely ridiculous uh so <laughs> the thing that really annoys me is cuz I've, I've already explained that this is kind of a shitty a shitty paper okay and on the same day that Ezra released this episode basically lambasting the CBC for uh talking about it on this same day the CBC itself released a report, not that they were wrong, but basically reporting on the errors. So something that Ezra doesn't even pick up on is one of the signatories to the petition was Mickey Mouse. Okay. <laughs> and the, the thing that it was, so the, the authors claimed that they had a vetting process, but clearly it wasn't good if Mickey Mouse made the final cut of this thing. And the really frustrating thing is that as far as I can tell, the science in the piece is pretty legit. It, like so there was no new science it was basically elucidating the sort of science we already have and why the climate emergency is something we should take serious yeah and the eleven thousand signatories was just an additional like an attempt and an additional oomph to be like we're not the only ones saying this here's a bunch of like extra scientists yeah and it's really sad that that kind of backfired in that now you have all these anti-science people going, look at the stupid petition thing that was fake. It's clearly like some sort of cover-up or they're trying to pull a fast one on us. And, and you don't even need to do this study because we already know that 97% of climate scientists agree that global warming is happening and we need to do something yeah. about it. Yeah. So you don't need these 11,000 like, signatories of like reincarnation specialists or Mickey Mouse people. But at the same time, like this is what worries me about this piece is there are going to be some people out there who are going to read it and go, oh, the, they had Mickey Mouse in the whole thing. Like these climate scientists are idiots and yeah. then like dismiss the whole thing. And that's tragic. Like that should not happen. So as people who care about climate, you should not do shitty things like this. 
But before well, we move be on, sloppy, I think. Yes. Just in writing or vetting, if or just be like we have a petition of eleven thousand people rather than just saying scientists. Right. But even then, so before we move on, we're going to talk about one more case of somebody who signed this thing. And this person was clearly a troll who registered for this petition with the company BS Detection and Analysis. <laughs> and Ezra, so Ezra, what he did on his show is he went through all the Canadian people listed and like checked them out and came across this one and went to their Facebook. Okay. And then he says something that I think is pretty revealing. But this guy, Hans Weinhold, is that him there? This is from his Facebook page. That him catching a fish? That's very environmental. But look at that hat. Is that, is that a Trump hat? Does that make America great again? And, and what's this? Look at this picture. Is that an InfoWars shirt? Oh my God. And here he is in a yellow vest, and he's wearing a Make Canada Great Again hat. I think that's one of ours here from the Rebel. My friends, I think I found the one guy on the entire list of 11,000 people who has a sense of humor. Uh, the intonation there at the end is weird. Like, that is the end of it. But he's like, sense of humor? It's like he's not sure that this guy has a sense of humor. But uh, a little concerning that this person is a Trump hat wearing, yellow vest wearing, <coughs> info shirt wearing, make, make Canada great again hat wearing. And I guess that is something that uh, Rebel sells. I don't know if they're the only people who sell that hat. But Ezra seems to think, like, it's okay that he was wearing an Info shirt, uh, <laughs> InfoWars shirt, which, as we've covered it, like, that's Alex Jones. Like, I mean, that should be, like, yeah. too far gone for Ezra, but clearly it isn't. He's, uh, he's cool. He's with... very excited about this, yeah. Yeah. And the Yellow Vest, too. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, like, the Yellow Vest movement in Canada is really gross. Really, really gross. But, uh... <laughs> that's that the end of that we'll move into yeah. the the interview segment of the show and again i'm not going to say much about this because it was uh with the leftists want us to eat human poop uh bugs and other humans <laughs> talking about marky mark morano was back on the show and he's going to talk to us about trump pulling out of the paris agreement he's not going to talk to us because i'm not going to play it because it was really boring i really don't care about this it's just the Two of them gloating about, like, Trump, he's so good. Look at him stick it to those Europeans who think global warming's real. What? Yeah. <laughs> the only thing to learn about in the segment is that Ezra is planning to send Kian and Sheila to the Madrid climate summit that is planned. Okay. There's no, like, firm date set on it, but he's planning on doing it to go harass all the, <laughs> all the people at this uh, summit. So something to look forward to. So we're moving on to the seventh. He begins the show with a piece about Chinese police patrolling the streets in Italy. Okay. And the, th the whole piece, it's like, why are you talking about this? This is so fucking stupid. And all it is, is I guess there's some uh, new exchange thing that the Italian police and Chinese police are doing where they invited some Chinese police to help patrol tourist areas alongside like Italian police as well. Yeah. And the idea is, I guess there's a high uh, Chinese population in that area. And so it's a way of like 
I don't know, like telling them about the laws of, of both countries and getting, I like, I don't know. That's basically what it sounds like. And okay. Italy is doing the same thing over there. So like they're sending some Italian police to China, to China and doing, oh, uh, is there a lot of Italians going to China? I guess so. I don't know. I mean, like the thing seems pretty innocuous. If you ask me, it just seems like a weird, you know, exchange thing. But Ezra's like, are the Chinese spying on the Italians? <laughs> does a whole segment on it and like there's no facts in it he's just why would he even be concerned about that i don't know (laughs) well i know why he hates china he's a huge china phobe he thinks that they're communists communists coming to get us which is dirty communists constant in, in like every week chinese communists are coming to kill us but anyway so that was the opening segment and then we move into the interview segment and it was a lot more interesting because okay. there was a man named Peter Downing. Oh, a new person. Up. They've been all, other than Marky Mark, I think they're all new people for the interview segments. This okay, so, change up. Yeah, changing it up. But uh, Peter Downing, he is framed at, by Ezra as the lead campaigner for the hashtag Wexit campaign. Oh. And... I'm not going to talk... The, the interview itself was interesting because Ezra is very confrontational with them, okay. which kind of surprised me. But, like, it'll kind of make sense once we get to it. But I will give you a bit of the background about Downing himself because he himself is a very problematic figure. Okay. <laughs> so he was a... He used to be an RCMP officer before he was discharged, and he was discharged for threatening his ex-wife. Oh, nice. Court documents revealed that he cut his hand punching a fan and then wrote bitch in blood on their bed before threatening to throw her out of a window. His response to these allegations were uh, to say that sometimes females lie and sometimes judges believe it. Now, I will say his use of females is a tad bit creepy. Not not just a tad, it's fucking creepy as shit. Then <laughs> he also said in a speech that he can't be racist because his current wife is not uh, white. Okay. So therefore he can say and do whatever he wants. Oh, cool. Downing also ran in the 2015 federal election for the Christian Heritage Party. Ew. Which <laughs> has as part of its platform the inclusion of blasphemy laws. Laws against adultery, laws against homosexuality. Of course. It's very pro-capital punishment. They're in favor, surprisingly, of censoring journalism. They're like, we need to bring this back to the feudal ages. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) Part of their platform also says that anarchy is the result of the promotion of human rights. (laughs) They're... Not good. And they received 18,000 votes during the 2019 election. That's scary in itself. Yeah. Uh, They primarily run out of Alberta. I think they're pretty... In Ontario. They have Christian heritage people. Oh, that's terrifying. Yeah. I wonder... uh, My guess is that their vote population though is primarily in Alberta. Either way, 18,000 votes across the country is still pretty terrifying. And so some more background on Downing. I've heard, though can't verify from people who have worked with him, 
that he is prejudicial towards non-Christians, even in his workplace. Nice. So that's not good. And for his Wexit campaign, he has also said that he wants Alberta to be run like a corporation. So, <laughs> Peter Downey. <laughs> Who's the CEO then? Uh, I guess. Well, so Ezra does ask him in the interview who he thinks the leader is going to be for the thing. Yeah. And he kind of implies that he's going to be the leader, but it's, it's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, as I said, it is kind of surprising how confrontational... Do I get to buy shares in Alberta? <laughs> how much of Alberta can I own? I don't know. How How much percentage-wise, I just need to know. I think he's just thinking that he wants to run it as a fascist dictator, not as a... I don't a... think he knows what the word corporation means. I don't think he knows very much. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he made it on the show, so... <laughs> Uh, well, I'm going to play part of the exchange just to show like how tense it, cause it felt kind of tense, how tense this interaction is. And I, and I, to explain sort of the tension is that I think Ezra is really concerned with the movement going more towards uh, a sort of party position because he's worried about splitting the votes, uh, and all that, which, again, he was worried about all that during the election. But let's watch how he interacts with this guy. Okay. Well, um, I will look forward to you fleshing things out. And, again, I feel like I, I don't want to cross-examine you here. I, You're a lawyer. <laughs> it's okay. I, I just, I'm trying to, like, I... He's not a lawyer anymore. ...once, and I observed Preston Manning do the extremely hard work, 200 nights a year on the road, of building a political party from scratch. And by the way, in those early days, he only ran candidates in the four Western provinces. So it sounds... We've learned from our friends in, uh, who were early reformers too, and that was the biggest mistake they made, was running candidates east of Manitoba. We are only running candidates in Western Canada. But, and again, for the purpose to be... Again, literally I'm not trying to argue with you, but the lesson I learned, and I was Preston Manning's assistant for a couple of years, I saw some of it was um, the Reform Party guaranteed three liberal majorities in a row because it was trying to do things in the federal parliament. Um, its motto was the West wants in. I don't know if its motto was the West wants out would have been stronger, but I, I, I don't want to go back on that again, but I'm just not sure how sending MPs to Ottawa fixes the problem, but let me move off that because I, we, I, I think you're just going to have to figure these things out and flesh them out. You've told me that's what you're doing. Let's so you've got, you've got, you've got exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to. I don't. I, I, I don't. I mean, I'm, I'm rooting for you. I'm just trying to understand yeah. what you're saying. Let me ask you more concrete questions. I mean, that's like one of the ongoing dynamics in this discussion is the Peter Downing keeps saying like, no, you understand what we're saying. And Ezra keeps going, I don't understand with what you're saying but I'm with you. It's like he's always with him, even though <laughs> why would you be with someone if you don't understand it? I feel like he's just trying to be cordial, though. That's what he's trying to do. He's trying to say, like, I don't know what's happening, but yeah, go for it, bud. You know, like, do your thing. Yeah, I wonder if there's, like, a tension there because I think Ezra... Ezra seems to realize that Western separatism is 
being like emboldened by this like far right movement and he yeah. wants to hop on that bandwagon yeah but again just like he was torn between bernier and the conservative party because he's worried about liberals gaining power the ndp gaining power yeah i think he feels the same way about this wexit stuff which is that he wants to like be in with the grift and like get those people but he's still worried about splitting the votes and like all those other concerns that he has but that was that was downing. I'm sure that uh, Wexit stuff is going to come up again in the future. And uh, I talked with a, a lot of people like the Yellow Vest exposed uh, individuals who, uh, well, they're the people exposing the Yellow Vests. Okay. And they uh, helped gather some of the information that I've, I've used today. And they also sent me some other stuff. So if downing comes up again, we'll have another look at some of the other Less pleasant things that Downing has said as a person. Fun stuff. Yeah, so we're gonna now we're on to Friday, the last episode of the week. Okay. And in Friday's episode, Ezra discusses this new Alberta bill that has been put forward that basically says that doctors should have the ability to deny service based on their own conscience. Now, this bill is obviously going to give doctors the right to deny having to perform abortions. And Ezra is promoting it as and other, such. Yeah, and then other things like prescribing birth control or... And, and tons of things. We'll, yeah. we'll get to it in a second. So he says this is not an anti-choice or anti-abortion, but a pro-choice bill, since it allows doctors to choose what they feel comfortable doing. Don't you get it? Then don't do that fucking occupation. You know what I don't like touching? Garbage. Garbage to me is disgusting, and I don't even like throwing out my garbage. You know what job I'm not going to do? Become a fucking garbage person, because I don't like doing that. Well, I was going to say, compare this to the friggin' circumstance that he was talking about last week with the woman who he claimed was ruled that she didn't have to wash her hands, right? And he made made such a big deal about that, which is like, if you're going to work in a restaurant, you got to be able to wash your hands. Well, why can't you say the same thing about doctors? If you're going to be a doctor, especially one who works with women health, like you might have to. Yeah. Uh, or it's like be a doctor, people, but don't be a yeah. doc, a gynecologist. Right. Or don't do abortions then. Go to like, I don't know, oncology or something like that. That's a great profession. You could deal with cancer <laughs> patients. Like it's a great profession. Or be, uh, I don't know, just avoid anything in like family doctor. Be an ENT doctor where you're just dealing with the ears, nose, and throat. There, nothing to do with those downstairs parts. There, you're good, right? Well, maybe, because here's the thing is, what's what's to say with this bill that it wouldn't uh, end up going against people with other concerns like LGBTQ issues and like things like hormone therapies and stuff like this? What if you're, if you think that trans people aren't right, so therefore you don't yeah, think Yeah, but I think a right? lot of those things get, like, they, there's certain professions for that in the medical field, right? So it's like, if you don't want to deal with that issue, you shouldn't go into that specific profession of medicine. Like you could still well, become like, a no, doctor. So, so what I would say is like, where does the, where does this like idea of conscience rest? So say like you have your general practitioner yeah. who would need to refer you to a specialist who deals with something like that. Yeah. What if they don't even refer you because it's. No, I don't conscience. think those people should be family doctors. I think they should lose their license. And- no, I agree. But yeah. I think that this bill will give them the, the workaround to say that. But I don't there's even also have to refer regulations around professions and their associations as well. So what, what would happen with that? Because. 
Well, I'm not... My guess is that this would uh, overrule those decisions because it's a higher law uh-huh. that would like, it would be something that overrides their professional things. Yeah. Because they're, even, they're like, not like unions, so it's well. not, yeah. It's a little bit more complicated yeah. than the law, but uh, it's not good. But, <laughs> but the thing is, so Ezra, Ezra then points this out that like some people have complained that it's also going to be used to discriminate against yeah, gay people. exactly. And he then goes, oh, that can't be possible. And he explains it, but he like directly contradicts himself. So <laughs> here's that clip. Apparently, according to the media, this is also somehow anti-gay. What? How's it, how's it anti-gay? Anyway, so I, I read the bill. It's very brief. Can I, I just want to read a couple parts to it. The first part of the Constitution rights, but here, for number two. For greater certainty, nothing in this act derogates from a healthcare provider's or religious healthcare organization's obligations to their patient, which may include informing individuals of options in respect of receiving a healthcare service. So this private member's bill doesn't take away any medical duties. It just says the patient can't force the doctor to do anything contrary to his religion. Yeah, let me quote. If a healthcare provider, that's a fancy way of saying a doctor, or religious healthcare organization determines that their conscientious beliefs would be infringed by providing a specific healthcare service to an individual, the healthcare provider or religious healthcare organization is not required to provide that healthcare service to the individual. And that's pretty much it for the bill. There's just some more details that you can't file a professional complaint against a doctor for conscientious uh, beliefs. Pretty short bill. I I double-checked it. The word gay is not in the law. The word trans is not in the law. There's none of those things in the law. I checked. The word abortion is not in there. I checked. The word charter is in there eight times, and the word rights is in there 12 times. It's, I don't even think the law is necessary because it's just reasserting what the charter said. But that's where we are as a culture in 2019. The media party is outraged oh that <laughs> doctors who are Jewish, Christian, Sikh, Muslim, whatever, cannot be compelled to go against their religion. He's... Reason for not having to do with anything having to do with uh, gay people or trans people is that gay people and trans people aren't even mentioned in the bill. Yeah. Yet he then goes on and specifies that abortion isn't even in in the bill. Yet he spent most of this episode talking about how this is to like allow doctors to make a choice not to perform abortion. Where it's like, no, it's allow them to not make any choices if it's against their religion. And if their religion is anti-gay, yeah, then they would do things that are anti-gay. Yeah. Like, I don't I have no clue what he was trying to do there with like, oh stupid. But there's other like religions too, like Jehovah Witnesses don't believe in blood transfusions. So are you just gonna be like, oh, this kid is gonna die. They need a blood transfusion, but I'm not gonna give it to them because it's against my belief. And it's an immediate concern because they're literally going to die very soon. I don't have time <laughs> to get another doctor to do this, so I'm just going to let them die. Which means you lose your medical license, so that's fantastic. So I don't know how that's going to cover all those issues. 
what if a woman comes in and she has an ectopic pregnancy? Are you not going to perform that abortion there and then, despite the fact that an ectopic pregnancy can lead to death? And it is immediate concern. You can't like fly her out or transport her to another hospital. You're going to have to deal with that there and then. And if you don't want to do it, don't become a fucking doctor. It's really simple. It's like there's a lot of things that I don't want to do. Like I don't want to become a doctor because I don't like the idea of cutting open things. Or, you know. Or helping people. (laughs) No. (laughs) That's why I'm a sociologist. Yeah. I had friends. No, just a good example. I have friends that want to become veterinarian, veterinarians. And like they went to school for it. They're, you know, applied for their school. And what actually made them not want to become a vet is they didn't want to put animals down. But that's a part of their duties in that profession. Right. And if someone's telling you to put the dog down or put their cat down or whatever, you have to do it. And so they were like, I'm not going to do this because I can't do that specific duty because of my conscience, I would feel too guilty. I'd feel bad. I can't do it. I can't handle the the emotional pressure. Or maybe like I've had friends that are vegan and they're like, I can't, I can't kill an animal. It's against like my personal beliefs. Right. So they don't do the fucking job. That's it. They pick a different career path. And having a career that isn't like your original dream job isn't the end of the world. But the thing that frustrates me the most about this is that these libertarian, like the far right pretends to be libertarian all the time. But at the end of the day, they're like libertarian, except when it comes to religious rights. Yep. And that's frustrating. And it's usually Christian rights. And that's frustrating because Ezra's not even Christian. (laughs) So. But I said this on our last episode that religion gets tied into the foundations of capitalism. Yeah. Which Ezra is very pro-free market. It's it's why this Peter Downing guy who's with the Christian Heritage Party wants to run Alberta like a corporation. Yeah. And it's why fascism and religion are like intertwined. Yeah, yeah, specifically Christianity or the Protestant uh, type of Christianity. It's because the foundations of capitalism was built on those religious morals. And then so when you're questioning it or you're uh, perversing the those morals, what ends up happening is people can't take it. Like yeah. they're, um, it's a direct attack on their way of being society as a whole. Because it's almost as if the people who are against identity politics really super care about their own identity and it being attacked. <laughs> Actually, it's interesting because I was telling you about this before we recorded last week, but I'm watching the show uh, Man in the High Castle. And it's basically the whole premise of the show is like, what if Nazis and ja- the Japanese won the war? So what if fascists took over? And it's set in like 1962 and like a huge thing about what's the Nazi Reich, which is just Reich, Reich. Reich? Yeah. Which is just like (laughs) now almost like half of the world now is um, like the family is the foundation for everything. And like the family has to be like this nuclear family household. And it has all these like super Christian morals but then they burn Bibles 
So it just makes zero sense to me throughout this entire show because it's like, but it, it's true, like in our in our society, because it's like you'll have people that aren't Christian or they're like super far right or even fascist, and they'll say like things like that, like they're not religious or they hate on other religions, but they have these like religious morals and ideals so tied into those other right leaning beliefs, and so bringing it back to the show is like they'll they'll burn the bibles if someone practices a religion they'll execute them or sometimes if you're like up in a high place they'll give you like a warning but it's usually the warnings like towards some form of torture um but religion just gets tied so much into the ideas of like how family should be how uh then why are they burning the books i'm curious about that oh in the show because like nazis didn't like want christianity they didn't want any religion to prevail they wanted it to be like well that's complicated like i know like the nazis uh had elements of christianity infused in their thing but that's but there's all this, types like, of fascism weird, right yeah and it was a, a weird form of paganism to a certain extent of like there's a spiritual energy imbued in germany that is like the fatherland they weren't very pleased with like the Mediterranean countries that were super Catholic and they didn't like those ideals of either, despite the fact that they had a pact with Italy. Well, I'm um, just saying it's, it's complicated. Like you, I mean, they borrowed a lot from Nietzsche who was clearly anti-Christian and saw like Christianity as I don't really think a form they're, of weakness. They're not Christian. And a lot of times they did burn religious well, they, texts that were related to Christianity. Again, it's complicated because like at the other end of it too, they they used... The, so the thing is the German people, a lot of them were Protestant and therefore Christian. Yeah. And the, 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 and the Nazis used... Well, here's the thing. Is the Nazis used a lot of Christian language and like appealed to Christianity. And so like the debate becomes... But the debate becomes like, were they just using those idioms and like the way to talk to get them along? Or did the Nazis actually... Were some of them yeah. cool with Christianity? But that's, that's like everyday, like secular society too, uses so much of Christianity and like the morals, the values, traditions, ways of life that you yourself, who's an atheist, practice in, and you just don't realize it because the foundations of capitalism is like its morals, its foundations are based in Christian texts and religion, specifically the Protestant faith. Right. But the difference is that I. No one is using like explicit religious language to get me to go and do things, even though I exist in a, a somewhat like Christian influenced society, right? Yeah. Because like that's the difference. Like the Nazi Party actually like referred to itself as being pro Christian, and the reason why they did that is because most of the people of their country were Christian, and for them, that's why you get a lot of the neo Nazis. And a lot of the, the the white supremacist movement is highly Christian because mm -hmm. for them, that is the proper one true sort of like religion. And uh, like even but, the Germans believed it. And like, But you also have like, you know, like Ezra right now is Jewish, right? And then you also have a lot of atheists that are very far right. And I just think that a lot of times these Christian sentiments, whether you believe it or not, are so tied into it. No, I agree with you. I agree with that. And I really percent. think what far right groups are is just like this hyper extreme version of the foundations of what capitalism was founded on, which was like 
the sanctity of the family or the ability to like be free and govern yourself and have the free market, right? Like it, like this liberalism ideas, but far right groups take it to this extreme. And then they have this, and then you have the additive layer of like these fascist sentiments of like this true good race. Right? Well, that's like, like the weird thing with the far right, because it, it like almost inverts it on itself where it's like, they don't appreciate the religion for the religion itself. If that makes sense. They appreciate it more for its traditional qualities or the fact that this is part of our heritage and they see it as like more of like a cultural thing as opposed to like even someone like Richard Spencer, I think, calls himself a cultural Christian. He's not he, he doesn't believe in God or believe in Jesus, yeah. but he believes that Christianity is like the white religion and it's a part of our white Western heritage. Our heritage, yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, anyways, the the inter the funny thing is, this is actually going to lead into the main segment as well. That we're going to get into a lot of this. So let's just uh, finish off because I got one. Once once we finished with uh, that stupid law in Alberta, he moves into the interview section. And there's nothing really to say about the interview section except something that's really hilarious about it. So the interview, the interview is with a guy named Gordon Chang. And Gordon Chang is on there to talk about uh, Chinese relations with Ezra again and Chang is a Chinese American conservative pundit who wrote a book called the coming collapse of China and he wrote this book in 2001 he's been making predictions ever since then about the coming collapse of China being more specific that China was going to collapse in 2012 and then when it didn't he again made a prediction that it's going to collapse in 2016 until it didn't <laughs> and uh leading some scholars to say that chang's predictions collapse his own credibility oh. <laughs> the other thing that's cool about this gordon chang guy is that there's this article i found that was uh, uh written about this other chinese scholar who works at stanford university okay and his name is also gordon chang Oh, nice. And he says that being mistaken for the other Gordon Chang has become the bane of my life. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> for the past 20 years, he has had to direct many calls intended for the other Gordon Chang. Uh, <laughs> I just changed my name at that point. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the thing that's, like, cool is, like, the Stanford Chang is, like, writes about, like, the opposite thing that the other Gordon Chang writes about. So he has a book uh, that came out recently called Fateful Ties, A History of America's Preoccupation with China, which I think is hilarious considering Ezra's preoccupation with China. <laughs> uh, and so, yeah, it's probably something Ezra should read, but Ezra probably won't read it. But uh, that's all I have to say about Gordon Chang. The interview is just like Huawei is bad and China is bad. And that's the interview. Great. This is, it's going to be a bit heavy. and Are we talking about Nazis? Uh, no. Oh, okay. Nazi adjacent? I mean, it's all Nazi adjacent with Ezra. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll begin by... Since, since I'm basically covering all of Monday, it's going to be weird because we're going to start by talking about some more Alberta separatism shit. And that's like at the beginning half. And then... 
main focus of the segment is going to be on the interview portion, but I feel like the opening segment just perfectly leads into the bullshit we're going to cover in the interview section that we have to cover. So he begins on the 4th really, really, really mad about the CBC coverage of Alberta. Ezra uh, pontificates that he still does not think that Trans Mountain Pipeline is going to be built. This is the pipeline that was purchased by the Liberal government. The funny thing is, in reality... Construction on the pipeline was approved by the governor and council in June of 2019. However, since it's been approved then, it still needs to be done in consultation with indigenous communities and landowners who would be most directly affected by the pipeline. In August, Trans Mountain Corporation gave a notice to proceed uh, directive to their contractors to give them 30 days to begin mobilizing their workforce. And this is happening at the same time that construction in BC, where the pipeline reaches the ocean, already began in August. So again, parts of this thing are already being worked on. Yeah. On October 28th, Trans Mountain released uh, on Twitter that they've hired 22,000 people to begin work on the pipeline. So that was just a couple weeks ago. So it's getting the going. Yeah. Yeah. However... This is where, like, maybe Ezra has a point, although not really, is at the same time back in September of 2019, the Federal Court of Appeals ruled that it would hear six challenges from Indigenous communities that had been filed, and the court is set to hear the appeals in December. So it's clear that even in the context of this court challenge happening, that the company is still moving and the government are still moving ahead with building this pipeline. So it could just mean that given these appeals that maybe they have to reroute the pipe like a different way but the point is it's still being built and as i said some portions of it are already being constructed at this very moment that ezra is saying that it's never going to be built (laughs) it so this is the other part where maybe ezra has a point even though not really is that at the same time all this is happening the ndp has vowed to continue to fight against the construction of this pipeline and with a minority government that might mean that they have some play there and some say the decisions of it. Right. But there's the possibility that Trudeau will just work with the conservatives to get it done. With those two parties, they have enough votes to do it. Yeah. Then the question is whether the conservatives would go along with Trudeau, but it's for a pipeline. So who knows? Okay. But this also puts Trudeau in a weird position, such as working with the conservatives to complete a project that actually hurt him during the election. <laughs> Right? I mean, like, it didn't win him any Alberta seats. Nope. Alberta went all the to conservatives. Uh, and everywhere else, everyone was mad at him for buying this thing. So, yeah. but, so we don't know how this is going to play out. But I heard some legal scholars saying there's almost nothing that he can do anyways because this money has been set aside and the workers have already been began. And so even yeah. if he were to cancel the project, lawsuits would come. And anyways, it's a big fucking mess. But as I said, people are actually starting to work on the thing right now. So Cool. So that was like the first piece. It's now moving on to another issue he has with the CBC. Okay. And it's an article that he describes as, well, he describes it as a CBC article, but in reality, it's an opinion piece. Okay. Written for the Newfoundland portion of the online site. And it's by a lawyer who has only ever published this one piece that he's uh, quoting. And... I admit that this piece is a bit condescending, okay. but the general takeaway is pretty spot on. So 
what the guy argues is that much like the cod industry having to change because of overfishing in Newfoundland, the energy industry needs to change because of global warming. Furthermore, that the solution to these problems are not tax cuts and cuts, cutting spending, but better governance to improve the lives of those who are going to be hurt by this change of economic circumstance. Okay. And so, like, I yeah. agree with that. But Ezra is deeply, deeply offended by this opinion block <laughs> and spends the entire time uh, covering the, the piece by reading it with a condescending voice himself while adding stuff that isn't even in the piece to make it sound much worse than it is. And so this is how Ezra feels about the piece when he's done reading it. And this ain't a friend of Alberta commiserating. This is concern trolling. This is someone telling Alberta that they're actually bigoted and racist and transphobic and sexist. And by the way, stupid and dinosaurish when it comes to science. This is a long-winded insult, this column. Posing as friendship. I love you guys, but you're stupid bigots and science says so. It's a smear. It's a lie. It's, it's bizarre. I'll hazard a bet that this author, Raymond Critch, hasn't spent a week in Alberta in his whole life. I almost want to play like one of those sad violins over that clip. It's really hard to believe that Ezra is a lawyer. It is. Well, considering what's happening in the United States and all the crazy lawyers that surround Donald Trump, it's actually not that surprising. No, it's just like you think he would be able to like better argue to some extent. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, he, I mean, unless you're being a propagandist and you want to sell a particular thing. Sure, but like, you're stupid and dinosaur-like and I don't like it. Well, like, that, that is that? what he's claiming the article says about Alberta. No, but that's what I'm trying to say. Is like, that's just so... I don't know. It's it's childish. It's very childish. And it's like, poor me. All these people are making fun of me. And so you might be wondering why I played this clip considering that this is typical behavior for Ezra. Yeah. To play the victim as if the media party, the liberals in Hollywood, and the human rights lawyers are all out to get conservatives and Albertans, and more importantly, Ezra himself, because we're such victims. And he spends 20 minutes talking about this stupid fucking article that no one read. Like, who reads the opinion section of the New Family portion of the CBC site? Maybe more people should. I don't know, but... Uh, I'm sorry uh, to Raymond Critch, <laughs> but I don't think many people read his uh, article. article. Yeah. But this is all the more insane when you consider who Ezra decides to interview mere minutes after this rant about how Albertans are being picked on. Oh. Welcome back. Well, as I tell you from time to time, there are so few books these days, especially in Canada, with a freedom orientation or a conservative orientation, that if we ever detect one, boy, we want to tell you about it. And I've got just the book for you today. It's called The Victim Cult, How the Culture of Blame Hurts Everyone and wrecks civilizations. So he's interviewing someone named Mark Milkey who wrote The Victim Cult, which again, ironic that he just spent a whole 20 minutes of his show playing the victim. Yeah. So who the hell is Mark Milkey? Well, he's most known for being a fellow of the Fraser Institute, which okay. we've already covered as a Coke-funded think tank. 
And just because this guy thinks everyone else is a victim, I highly recommend people to point out his connections to the Koch uh, brothers on Twitter because he reacts to it very defensively on Twitter, and it's funny. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Milky's focus while at the Fraser Institute is pretty typical to what you would think would happen at the Fraser Institute. So he discusses things like property rights, taxes, public sector pensions. They're bad, obviously. And Aboriginal issues. Oh, and that's going to be something we focus on in a bit. Not only has he worked for the Fraser Institute, but he's also uh, worked for other Koch-funded American think tanks, such as the American Enterprise Institute, which is home to people like Charles Murray, who wrote The Bell Curve, the racist book. He's also worked for the Heritage Foundation. He was also the director of the Canadian Taxpayer Federation. Oh, great. And he worked with Jason Kenney's United Conservative Party, in fact, during the election uh, that happened in Alberta back in April, Mark Milkey uh, wrote the UCP's platform. And I say he wrote it because large chunk of it, chunks of the UCP's platform were copied verbatim from one of <laughs> Milkey's books, uh, specifically the one entitled Ralph versus Rachel. Kenny just released uh, an austerity budget, which is basically going to destroy Alberta's public sector, largely based on some of the stuff promoted by Mark Milkey. And I just want to say that you can learn more about Kenny's budget from the awesome podcast, The Alberta Advantage, that recently did an episode on it. And it's going to be pretty devastating to Alberta. So, sorry to Alberta. Now that we know who he is, though, Milky begins his interview with Ezra describing a sliding scale of victimization. So he starts by talking about college kids complaining about Halloween costumes on college campuses. Okay. And then veers straight from that to start talking about the victim or how Germany felt victimized and turned to Nazis. <laughs> so Nazis are included in this, liar. Well, this is it. But uh, <laughs> he he explains that the Nazi, well, the Germans felt uh, victimized by the French apparently back going back to the eighteen hundreds, and that's why they turned to Nazism. <laughs> and somehow, so he like. He has it on the sliding scale, basically going, in the case of college campus, people complaining about Halloween costumes, that's like people who like aren't really victims, but are still like reacting to victimization. Okay. Or the Germans were real victims, but they like went too far with it kind of thing. Yet he still somehow thinks that they're on the same page Spectrum. such that like, just give it a little bit more time and those college campus people complaining about costumes are all of a sudden going to be lining up Jews in the camps or something. Uh, <laughs> Ezra then says some weird shit about the history of slavery and how Black's li Black Lives Matter sort of makes sense in the American context. It just doesn't make sense in the Canadian context because we never had slaves, so what do Black people have to complain about? What? <laughs> That's what he says. I mean, he doesn't say in the way that I just put it. But he basically says that Canada doesn't have the same history as America, like slavery. And therefore, why are there Black Lives Matter activists in Canada? We did have slavery. We had aspects of it. We also had, it's not like we were free of prejudice against Black people no, either way, right? Yeah. Uh, and part of what Milky's argument is, well, like, so the irony is, like, you have here Ezra, Ezra sort of, like, points out that, hey, Black Lives in America might make some sense. Yet, Milky's whole argument is that structural racism is over now. So in, <laughs> oh so gosh. he says, uh, 
you can't go all the way back to that. That what happened 200 or 300 years ago is in the past and it has no effect on today's uh, society. And Milky then brings up Thomas Sowell. I don't know if you know who Thomas Sowell oh, is, yeah. but he is someone that like libertarians love to cite. He was a libertarian himself. He basically, he's, he's an economist and he's black, also works for the American Enterprise Institute. And his whole academic work basically focuses on the thing that uh, black people, are basically there's no racism anymore. So any wealth gap that exists or whatever has nothing to do with uh, some sort of structural problems. It all has to do with black life choices. And basically black people need to make better choices. Great. Yeah. So, and the sad thing is because he's black, he's this token figure that of people course, can yeah. use and they're saying, I'm not racist. Look, Thomas Sowell said similar things that I said. Yeah. And you can point him out. Uh, and it's almost cult. Like I've, I made a meme once, like a long time ago before we even doing this podcast, which is every time I would talk about libertarianism and how crazy it is, or even if I were to talk about like a racial wealth gap, I always had libertarians hop into my mentions and be like have you read thomas sowell you can't argue unless you've read thomas sowell you need to read thomas sowell and so i made a meme of like uh, a mormon <laughs> it's like have i told you about the book of Sowell?" oh my gosh because <laughs> they're like cultists that like just always throw soul at you uh even though he's not considered a, a reputable economist by most economists the other thing is so so that's that's where uh, Milky goes. But the thing is, like, even Ezra shouldn't make the claim that somehow Black Lives Matter are subtly legitimate because he he has said on the show himself that he's against Black Lives Matter and he's platformed Gavin McGinnis and all these other people who have criticized Black Lives Matter, yeah. which we've covered on the show. So it's like, why? <laughs> he sometimes takes, like, weird stances like this. But again, even his, his guest contradicts him, like, right after he says it. Milky then explains the inspiration for the book, and it's something that we're going to go into in a bit more detail. In the case of Canada, you're right. There's been sort of this import of that sort of thinking or that that the importation of that kind of politics. But you also see it in indigenous circles, right, where there's a call for uh, compensation, um, that sort of thing, or restitution. Now, the problem with this is people don't connect the dots. If they look back and say, what happened 50 years ago or 100 years ago is why I am in my position today, they make sometimes the wrong link. And in fact, the inspiration for the book came from this, where I saw First Nations leaders, some, not all, but First Nations leaders time and again make the wrong link. So they look back 50 years or 150 years or 300 years and say, the reason my particular reserve is poor today is because of that. No, there's a more current reason. It has to do with the geography. As I try and explain in the victim cult, if you look at geography, for example, most First Nations reserves in the country are in the middle of nowhere or in the north or both, and they're not close to educational opportunities. They're not close to income opportunities, and therefore, that's why you find poverty on reserves. That's why you find the average Aboriginal income in Canada is lower than others. But the moment you go away from reserves and you do a comparison, an apple-to-apple -apple comparison, which I do in the victim cult, I look at those you know, young Aboriginals ages 25 to 34, compare them to other young Canadians ages 25 to 34, and guess what? If you have a degree, if you have a diploma, you earn as much as any other Canadian, as an Aboriginal Canadian. I want to just pause there because it's a long clip. We're about halfway through it. 
Now, I, I, I don't know if you caught the the half, the last half there where he's, he talked about sort of like the degree thing. Yeah. And the thing that's really silly about that, like, I don't know if you picked up on this, but when you make a comparison like that by saying, look, if you were to compare an indigenous person right now who has a college degree and compare that to a non-indigenous person who has a college degree, he's like, look, they make similar amounts. Yeah. But that ignores the fact of like how many indigenous people are getting that degree because they have access to this thing or not, right? Like sure. he just assumes yeah. that like uh, if they only just somehow use their magical ability to make choices and choose the right life path, they can just apply to this university and get a degree and therefore, yeah. and there's or no ha- structural impediments to this. Does that person have debt that they're accumulating, right? Like we don't know. Um, what are their exact life outcomes after that fact, right? Like if you get a degree and then get a job and your income, what else, right? Like you might accumulate debt throughout your university career, which make your other life choices much more harder and accumulate more disadvantages as you go along. Um, another thing though he said was about geography, but it's like how they're in the worst locations. And I was like, why the fuck do you think that is though? What like so it has nothing to do with history. It has because they just chose to go there and do that horrible <laughs> piece of geography. They chose to isolate themselves over there. I mean, like it is ironic because that is a historically contingent fact. That, and then he that was, was like, beyond it's not their choice. Historical. But... It's current. It's they chose to go to that piece of land over there. And I'm like, what? Well, I think in his mind, he's thinking that they can just choose to leave. But or that like implies relocate the reserve, but yeah. to the middle of Toronto. Where well, so he, I mean, but this is the the other thing because even even if you accept what he's saying, well, not I'm saying it wrong because here's the thing: what he's saying actually isn't true. I think is yeah. what I'm saying because here's the thing: is, there's many reserves that are really close to large cities with universities. So, for example, there are three reserves just outside of London where yeah. we live, and they also experience problems with poverty that are independent of the fact of their close proximity to London, Ontario. Yeah. Even the reserves in the North, a lot of them actually would be fine. I mean, they lived in nature for their whole lives. Like, it really wouldn't matter. The issues that occur there are because of things like the fact that their water are polluted with mercury. Yeah. Which is the result of of colonialism and mining and not having mining regulations that poison their water and their ability to live up there. And so, like, for him to say that somehow, though, like, it's their choice to just stay there and drink, like, the, the mercury-filled water? Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, no, I couldn't, I I couldn't believe it. ridiculous that he's like, it's not historical. They're going way too in the past and making connections. It's a current thing. They're just in the wrong spot. They just need to get up and move. Yeah. And I'm like, how are they going to do that, though? Where, how are they are they going to be like let's just move a reserve in the mid, middle of downtown Toronto since there's much more resources let's just pick up this piece plot well, it over in Toronto I think what he's saying is that they should just give up their indigeneity yeah that's really what he's saying yeah like why stay with a group of people where you can learn your language and culture go live in Toronto and lose it all which he's trying to say you should assimilate to right and the thing is, he thinks that there's no, not even a structural impediments to that, too. So I'm going to play the rest of this clip. Why? Because you're probably not on reserve. You're likely in an urban center and you have the same access to education, 
and uh, income and other opportunities as other Canadians. And so there is this notion that we should be compensating for what happened 50 or 100 years ago. And I say, well, no, because um, you're not your ancestor, for one thing. You're not the person who lived 50 years ago or 100 years ago who did experience gross discrimination and prejudice and uh, what, what I call in the book apartheid. Um, but that's gone. It really is. There isn't institutional discrimination against First Nations. What there is, in fact, is sometimes race and gender quotas and other um, other type quotas that that favor you know certain groups. Uh, so, in fact, we've tried, rightly or wrongly, in the case of quotas uh, and other sort of you know programs, we've tried to correct for the past. But today, the problem for Aboriginal Canadians is not institutionalized racism. You might meet an occasional racist in your personal life, but there's no institutionalized racism. Racism, it, it's been abolished decades ago. The problem is still reserves in the middle of nowhere. And when people look back and try and blame the past too often, they actually miss the link. And what that means tragically is they won't look for the real cause of their problems today, or in some cases, in other examples, they won't take responsibility for their own lives and their own choices. Yeah. What he's saying is that continued poverty and disadvantages that face indigenous uh, populations. It's personal choice, and they're just not taking personal responsibility. And so I, I just have a, a bit of a, a rant here of some things that are happening, but structural racism indeed does exist. We recently in London had a case where Deborah Christian, who died in police custody in 2016, uh, finally, just in a couple weeks ago, the police officer who denied providing her medical attention when it was necessary was found guilty in her death. And I mean, that is a, in some sense, a good step in the right direction that yeah. they got justice for this. But at the same time, you have police that denied a woman medical attention. And this happens more than likely if you're indigenous. There's also the fact of, uh, non-police officers that engage in violence against indigenous communities like the uh recent relatively uh killing of colton bushi out of west whose murderers basically got away with it they shot and killed him i mean the justification was they were standing their own ground or whatever because they had uh the indigenous kids had gone onto the property without permission but the person who shot him basically shot him in cold blood cold Bushi was unarmed, standing in the field when the sure. uh, person but, shot him. Again, this is that's still, I would say, a personal count of racism. So systemic would be issues like, for instance, that well, governments so, have, like, for example, in the 60s, the 60s scoop where they would go and systematically take away kids because they saw Indigenous women unable and unfit to be mothers. So they would take around, take away those kids, and a lot of those kids are now adults and now face those consequences from that government-based decision. Or it's the fact that majority of reserves are placed in the most, or are placed in geographic areas that are less favorable, desirable. A lot of them have the, uh, um, like how, like pipelines actually work is like a lot of times they get dumped in indigenous reserve areas or garbage. Yeah. so I actually have... But here's, here's why I think those two things actually are structural. So in the case of the police, you had where police uh, are more likely to discriminate against indigenous populations. 
And that is a structural problem. And it well, does happen yeah. to how they treat indigenous populations. And then the case of Colton Bushi, the structural aspect of it is the fact that our court systems favored the white population over the indigenous populations with how they treated that case. So you're right, like the person who shot Bushi was an individual act of racism. Yes. But it existed shot, yeah. in a context that did have some structural. Or the fact that the murder and missing indigenous women and the yep. fact that we have no like we have laws but we refuse to actually like acknowledge them or do anything about these issues so and here's the thing is like i'll get i was going to cover the 60s scoop we, we don't have to talk about much about it but like a lot of these things are even like really recent so we can talk about the shooting of uh dudley george during the Iperwash crisis so this happened in 1995 for context of this crisis uh the, in 1942 the canadian military purchased the land from the stony point band uh, or at least position, uh, proposition to purchase the land from the Stony Point Band with a promise to return it after the war. And when they rejected the offer, the Canadian government used the War Measures Act and just took the land from them. Tensions then grew over the years until eventually in the 90s, they occupied a nearby provincial park, Iperwash Provincial Park. Okay. And, this, uh, and they did it to draw attention to the land theft that occurred in 1942. Yeah. This is when Dudley George was shot by an OPP officer, even though he was unarmed. And le- years later, during a public inquiry, it was revealed that the OPP, working with the government of Ontario, was ordered to remove the Indigenous people from the park. And it was even released that the Conservative Premier Mike Harris shouted at the OPP that he wanted the fucking Indians out of the park. In 2007, the Ontario Liberal government agreed to return the land, which was finalized in 2016. So again, this isn't 200 to 300 years ago. Uh, we, so we can even talk about the residential school system. So not just the 60 scoop, but the residential school system, which it is important to note, the last school was closed in 1996. Again, not, re- <laughs> like not 200 no, to 300 yeah. years ago. The 60 scoop, as you called it, I mean, it's in the 1960s. Again, not 200 and 300 years ago. But the last children uh, that were... So it's called the 60s scoop, but the time period was between the 50s to the 1980s. So there was uh, yeah. people who are my age that were taken from their parents and adopted to white families and lost their language and other things. So this isn't 200 to 300 no, years ago. No, I know ago. a couple of people that that's happened to. So. And even, I mean, there's some indication that this is still happening to some families. It's not happening at the same scale, but uh, indigenous children are still being taken from uh, indigenous populations today and and sent to uh, white families. So, I mean, it's frustrating because Mark, again, Mark Milky brushes over this entire history uh, saying that indigenous people are only complaining about what happened 200 to 300 years ago. And it's clear that this shit is still happening today. He then falls to the boring conservative cliche that what the indigenous communities need is to learn some personal responsibility and he points to that really stupid study that shows that if you're lucky enough to make it to university as an indigenous person, you can have the pleasure to knowing you have a comparable income to similarly credentialed non-indigenous But there's Canadians. also a lot of other studies that show that relative to human capital investment, so that's the investments in your skill, your knowledge, your education, um, that indigenous men and women all have higher rates of unemployment they are more in long periods of unemployment and they're more likely to end up in less favorable and involuntary precarious employment as well. So yeah. that education doesn't really do anything. 
And then there's actually a lot of data out there. You could just look up Stats Canada and it'll show you that they make on average relative to investments to human capital. Yeah. They make less than white men and women. But that's why he's focusing on income and not something like wealth. Well, no, I guarantee you they're like... on income as well. No, okay, but like he's, I mean, I don't know what study he's referring to. He could be no, referring to No, that's why I said that's not true study. because like you could just look at basic statistics or proportions on stats. I mean, the data. other thing was like I didn't have his book in front of me. So like I don't even know what study he's referring to. Like if I were to type it. <laughs> I just wrote my comprehensive exam yeah. and one of my practice questions was on racial and indigenous wage gaps. And I wrote a whole section about, like, Indigenous people, despite the fact that they have, like, so recently, like, Indigenous groups that are off reserves are actually investing a lot more in their their higher education. Um, so, but the problem is they're still facing barriers to access to employment, and they're more likely in Canada to experience, like, really long-term unemployment periods. Which other studies have found if you have like uh, cycles of unemployment throughout your life, you're more likely to end up in this pattern of just being like unemployed or doing odd jobs. And it's very hard for people to get into like long settled careers. So that's why I'm just calling bullshit on this. And then I looked up basic stuff for, from Stats Canada, just like income averages for certain populations and groups. And looking at them relative to other factors, such as like your education, your sex, your uh, family background, all of that. And so what it's actually showing is that, but these are for people off reserves, not on reserves. Um, They do still earn a lot less, despite having the same education. Yeah. So if an indigenous man earns a degree and then a white man earns a degree, he's still making less. The indigenous person's still making less than the white person. So I don't know where he got that information from. And like my, my guess is given what he's written so far that he's just pulling the shit out of his ass. Or or it was an American or a Fraser Institute study. That's what it probably is, because there's no I haven't seen anything that maybe they've moved up and that's what he means to say, is that because more indigenous people are are investing in higher education in the past recent years that their income has slightly moved up and has closed that gap narrowly, like very slightly, but I've, I don't know. Right. Yeah. I mean, and to top it all off, uh, he got his super wealthy indigenous friend who works for like a gas company or invests in a gas company, something like that, uh, to write the forward to his book. So see, I can't be racist. I have my uh, indigenous friend write the foreword to my book. So, you know, it's the same thing. Identity politics is bad when it comes to diversity hires, but when it comes to diffusing your own racism, it's perfectly fine and acceptable. Milky goes on then in the interview. So like this is at just slightly after our clip. I'm not going to play the whole thing. Uh, so after the interview, uh, or he goes on to explain that focusing on things like the residential schools robs indigenous people of their agency. And what we need to do is tell people that their choices matter and that they can take control of their own lives. Now, you've talked about your own work. Most of my own scholarly work uh, has surrounded the issue of free will and agency. And my argument has always been that by focusing solely on the agent, we ignore real world circumstances that impede us from being able to make uh, choices. 
Human agency is not some sort of magical property that is not constrained by social circumstance. And you can see why this is appealing to racists, though. It can't uh, be the harm. It can't be that we have harmed uh, or caused harm to racial minorities uh, or the reasons they live in poverty. It's simply because they aren't trying to trying hard enough. They're not working hard enough to get themselves out of poverty. Yeah. So it's their fault, not ours. And this also fits in with the myth of the American dream, right? That by working really hard, you too can one day become a millionaire, even though most of us are never going to be millionaires. And that's uh, a part of the system. Like you yeah, can't yeah, possibly yeah. work out that way. And so this serves two functions for someone like Milky. One, it makes his accomplishments the results of his own effort, right? So a lot of people don't like to see themselves as products of their environment, like the fact that they're usually born into wealth. Yeah. They like the idea of like, no, I worked hard to get to of where course, I am. Yeah. Of course, I'm a good person. But the other thing is it's a way to pacify poor people and keep them fighting amongst themselves rather than fighting to change the system that keeps them in poverty by saying, I just have to work harder. And all these other people that are beside me that are also in poverty, they're not as good as me. One day I'll become the millionaire and I can make yeah. it above you all. Right? Well, it sounds like this guy needs to take some personal responsibility like his book's authors. Yeah. <laughs> Now, so here's the other the other side of that, though. Like, I don't want to deny agency and our ability to make choices for ourselves, right? There is some still some semblance of personal responsibility, whatever that means. However, I think we need to be realistic about what that means, which is why I like to reflect on the old saying, which is, uh, or like the old prayer or whatever it is, which is, Lord, grant me the strength to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. It is not wise... <laughs> now moving on from the saying, to tell a victim that their ongoing struggles are really their fault for not making better choices. In reality, there's probably a lot of things that are constraining them from making good choices. Yeah. And we should encourage them to keep fighting, but also learning to accept that their position in life isn't necessarily their fault, but they can do things to try to make it better. There's some happy medium there, but you can't just blame it. Like, it's victim blaming by saying... No, you somehow pull yourself up from your own bootstraps and it's all your fault while you're in poverty. Then it gets a little bit weirder. Milky brings up uh, someone named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. Do you know who Alexander Solzhenitsyn is? Oh, this is going to be fun. <laughs> he says he quotes Solzhenitsyn at length during the introduction of his book. And again, I'm not going to pay money to get his book. Uh, but I really wanted to know what he actually clipped from him. But I'll play the clip of him explaining the, the basic sort of like framework of what he's talking about with Solzhenitsyn. Something Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, and, and I, I quote it in the introductory part of the victim cult. It's really easy for all of us, no matter our background, no matter our ethnicity. Like my grandparents suffered. Um, you know, I mean, your ethnicity or your, your background, rather, as you're, you know, as Jewish, I think most people know. I mean, there's no shortage of, of victims in the Jewish community. And I mean, legitimate, like harmed people, obviously. I'm going to pause it there. Because one thing to note about Alexander Solzhenitsyn is that he is accused of being an anti-Semite himself. And I'll sort of like lead into that. But basically, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, he got famous for writing a book called the Gulag Archipelago. Oh, He yes. basically okay, suffered in the Gulag. <laughs> he, he was someone who was imprisoned in the Gulag system. And I don't want to take away from that experience. Uh, 
some people have said that his telling in the book is more literary than, say, nonfiction. Okay. But I think a lot of scholars come away saying that he does paint some accurate picture of what occurred in those camps. Yeah. And it doesn't sound pleasant. So no. I get it. Now, you can. there's some of, like, maybe my more uh, Soviet-friendly <laughs> friends that would say things like, Solzhenitsyn was actually working with the Nazis and that's why he was in prison. I don't know that there's We're a lot of evidence to back that up. Well, I mean, he didn't bring up the Nazis in this case. Yeah. I, I brought him up. But, uh, I mean, it's World War II. I mean, you can't, <laughs> in some sense, you can't avoid the Nazis when you're talking about World War II. Exactly. But whether or not uh, Solzhenitsyn was, in fact, a secret Nazi or something... He eventually ended up in the camps and wrote these books. Now, well, if he is a Nazi, I really hope they did torture him. Well, he does have some fascistic leanings, which is the other part of this. So the thing, the, <laughs> the thing is with Solzhenitsyn, so he wrote a lot throughout his life. Like once it came out that he was the one who wrote these books, and and he left uh, Russia. He blamed the rise of communism on what he described as the lack of religion and wanted Russia to return to its traditional roots. Before his death, he even praised Putin for taking steps in this direction by going back to the Orthodox Church and talking about Russia as the motherland, and talked about this spiritual energy imbued in Russia, which again, there's a lot of analogies here with Nazi Germany. Yeah. And he did this all while criticizing the materialism of the West, the degenerate materialist culture, if we're <laughs> getting close to what he said, uh, which again, echoes you can hear in the modern alt-right that sees this like, yeah, trans-decadence as being our shift into degeneracy and all this fun stuff. And you could also tell that there's an affinity between this and the homophobic religious white government of the modern day Russia, which is again, what appeals to a lot of people that yeah. describe themselves as being on the alt-right, which is why Solzhenitsyn has become, even though he wasn't always, he has become a kind of cult figure in the modern far-right movements where even people like Jordan Peterson I was about appeal. to say Jordan Peterson <laughs> Always yeah. goes, we can't communist communism. Look at the gulags, and he always refers to his book. So yeah, and I've I've read half of the Gulag Archipelago and put it down because other more important things came up. <laughs> but uh, I have read some of it, and you know, it's not again the Gulags were not pretty. That's just the truth. The ironic thing, though, again about Milky moving from Solzhenitsyn to talking about the Jews as victims, is that Solzhenitsyn himself uh, was accused of being an anti-Semite, uh, primarily in his last book, 200 Years Together, which was published in 2002. I think he died in 2008. And in this book, uh, he gave credence to a lot of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories regarding the connection between Jews and the Bolsheviks, sort of talking about how the leaders of the Bolsheviks were mostly Jews, they weren't. And <laughs> also saying that like Jews weren't dying on the front line during the fight against the Nazis in Russia, which is also not uh, true. Now, some uh, people came to his defense saying that 
he was just saying, because like part of the theme of the book, 200 Years Together, is trying to argue that the Jews and other people need to like get along. Okay. But when you're buying into anti-Semitic conspiracy theories while doing that, it seems a bit weird. Uh, <laughs> and again, some of these writings are another reason why uh, Solzhenitsyn has been adopted by a lot of alt-right people. But again, ironic that Milky somehow moves from that into, uh, you're a Jew, you understand victimhood, Ezra. <laughs> so yeah, now we'll, we'll listen to the rest of the clip. Uh, to put not too fine a point on it, to understate it. So there's no shortage of victims around the world. But what people who um, I think have read my book thus far, the feedback I get is they get that there's um, there's a need to say, yes, we recognize some people are harmed. But again, don't get stuck there because then you're your own worst enemy. Then you're, you're letting the racists and you're letting the bullies of history win. So don't get stuck there. And Alexander Solzhenitsyn also made a very key point that I quote in the introductory part of the book, which is, uh, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn, for your viewers that don't know him, was a Soviet dissident, fought against communism, had, was put in a gulag in, in the Second World War because he didn't agree with communism anymore, um, but had light bulb moments. And one of them was a lot of the people around him thought, if only we got rid of those other people who are evil. And Solzhenitsyn says, be very careful. The dividing line between good and evil is in our hearts. And you got to be really careful. And the problem is, even when you're victimized, and I, I portray the, the Hutus, for example, in Rwanda, victimized by the minority Tutsis earlier in the 20th century, they come to power. What do they do? They victimize the Tutsis. It leads to a genocide in 1994. Why? Because they thought the problem was in other hearts. And it's important to recognize that good and evil um, is in all of our hearts. And just because one has been victimized, but especially if one hasn't been, you got to be really careful uh, not to blame someone else, but perhaps take responsibility for your own choices. It's weird because I kind of agree with the sentiment that he's framing. No, I could see why a lot of people would probably, like if they heard him speak, get into it, not realizing that he's this far-right libertarian. Well, I mean, this little, given this little piece, yes. But there's like... A lot of people, and I think it stems from like things that Nietzsche had said as well, which again, Nietzsche was a complicated figure and all that fun stuff. But this idea of like, you don't want to become your enemy in a certain sense. Yeah. Like get so mad and so otherizing that you become the thing you hate. And so he's trying to say that like, as a victim, you don't want to get so angry in your victimhood that you start to think that only they have the evilness when you can have the evilness in yourself. And therefore you, you end up harming them in a way that they harm you kind of thing. And there's some like in a narrow sense, some truth to that. It's weird in this context because Ezra is in some ways going down that line of like, we've been so victimized by the rest of Canada that we need to go our own way and separate from the rest of these people. And again, separatism ends up, can end up in some violent places, like yeah. what happened in Quebec. The FLQ crisis was a real thing. And so these things could happen. Uh, but even then, you have the demonizing of Muslims that occur weekly on his show, yeah. which is, again, we need to keep them out of our country. We need to write yeah. the bad people. We need to get rid of them. It's, it's the same language that all of a sudden he's promoting here. But it's also, in some sense... Uh, stupid. <laughs> because 
one thing is like when you have real victimhood, one thing you want to encourage is to fight back to a certain extent. The reason why I think Alberta is stupid is because they're not real victims. They're just being assholes. Yeah. Right? But if you're a real victim, you don't want to not fight back. Which is why it's weird that the beginning portion of this where he talks about how, yes, there are real victims, but you don't want to get stuck there. But I'm like, what the hell does getting stuck there actually mean? Like when you think about it. Like, are the indigenous people who... He's like a part-time motivational speaker mixed in with a far-right libertarian. He's just like, you don't want to get into the mentality of victimhood. You want to move yourself out. But then, like, in the case of the indigenous people, when they took over the park, were they taking over the park because they were stuck there, or were they fighting back against oppression? Legitimately. No, he wants you to conform to the free market's expectations. Yes, he does. Yes. <laughs> I mean, but that's that's the thing. It's like the victims that Milky doesn't like are those who have been victimized by fascism or capitalism. It's the fact, for example, at the beginning of this, he's talking about reserves and how they're in their victimhood and they're just all in poverty, which, yeah, there is issues, but it's also a critique. He's criticizing the way of indigenous life because some people, their life is fine like that. They're more than fine living on a reserve, living off the land, learning their practices and traditions they're they don't feel like they're a victim they feel like that's a way of life that makes sense to them and that's them being agentic and choosing that right like that's that is an agency in itself but he's saying there's something wrong with that right because he doesn't like how, how the rowdy they are yeah he's like you fucking indigenous people need to stay and in your place would actually, and not be so rowdy and if you'd actually understand that things are systemic especially with government policy, then he'd understand why they fight back. Because it has nothing to do with them being poverty and poor. It has everything to do with governments coming in and taking from them. They're like, we just want you to let us be and have our own sovereignty over our own nation and our own land. So, I'm just (laughs) very uninformed. Yes, I mean, there's a question as well as whether it's being uninformed or him trying to push. No, I think he's really uninformed and very ignorant. Or or he's a propagandist. Sure. I mean, that, that's going to be the endless struggle, which is like, I don't know how much of it, of it is Ezra being a complete no, fucking piece of shit idiot. I know academics, though, that talk like this. That's why a lot, <laughs> there's a lot of people talk like that. Like, that's... They have this belief, like, yes, what happened to you was wrong, but we need to move past that and into the future. And, like, when they're saying that, they really mean you need to adopt a very capitalistic, a commercial way of life that has less government regulation and interference, and you just sell your soul to the to the owner. No, you're probably right. I just don't like it. And a wage rate, right? How could these people be so stupid? Because that's majority of people buy into Ugh. that. That's not stupidity. That is literally like everyday life, though. What he is actually preaching is what majority of people believe. I know. It's not even alt right at all. It's not extreme. Majority. Well, it's on that. It's it's definitely on that cusp. No, 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 no. It's actually very moderate compared to what all actual alt right. I don't think this guy speaks of himself as alt right. He he goes on a lot of out there shows i mean he was on lindsey shepherd's show as well being interviewed by her <laughs> and lindsey shepherd is someone who goes on out nazi programs 
So. Well. <laughs> perhaps, but you can get this sentiment from people. No, I, you're you're right. Of color themselves, First Nations people. Thomas Sowell, yeah. A, a lot of people. Women as well. I, I just don't like feminism because it makes me a victim. Like, that's what women say when they hear about feminism. And they're like, or it was good before when we couldn't vote or we didn't have these rights. But now, like, women are pushing it too much, right? Like, this sentiment is the everyday sentiments in everyday life. This is a very mundane sentiment that is just normalized. And No, you're right. Yeah, when you're right, you're right, Caitlin. And this time, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> so in closing, I want to say uh, just one final thing, which is at the same time that the Russians were passing laws restricting and persecuting homosexuality, Solzhenitsyn was praising Putin. But also, even if there is some truth to realizing our own capacity for evil and making sure our own anger at oppression doesn't slide towards scapegoating others and read instituting our own forms of brutal repression, it is also important to acknowledge when other people are, in fact, evil as shit. As Karl Popper once wrote, if we extend unlimited tolerance even to those who are intolerant, if we are not prepared to defend a tolerant society against the onslaught of the intolerant, then the tolerant will be destroyed and tolerance with them. The only reason why people like Milky and Ezra promote a kind of weird civility and tolerance discourse is because they want docile enemies who won't fight back. That they will blame their impression on their own moral failings and lack of personal responsibility, rather than blaming a system that continues to perpetuate racial, sexual, class, and gender discrimination. And as a wise band once sang, if you tolerate this, your children will be next. Oh, great. Fuck Ezra. <laughs> <laughs> So far, please give us a few bucks over on patreon.com slash imperial news. And if you want to stay informed about what we are doing, you can also find us on Twitter at imperial news with a Z, where you'll find me arguing with AIDS denialists for some reason. What? <laughs> I'll tell you after the show. <laughs> we have a private Facebook group called Imperial News. We also have a Discord set up. You can find the link on our Twitter, and I will eventually start streaming shows on Twitch. The username is Imperial News, also with a Z. I think I haven't mentioned that recently, but it's Imperial News. Zzz. Lastly, you can email us any question at imperial.fake.news at gmail.com, and I will get to some of them at the end of each show. If we have any, I would also like to thank my friend Mason Tickle, who provided the Star Wars-inspired transition beats. He has an album out on Bandcamp, thestriadam.com or striatom.com or striatom.bandcamp.com striatom.bandcamp.com and that's it have a nice night and uh fuck you mark milky albumia albumia how lovely are your wheat fields